Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 5, Renaissance Part 2 That summer, our cousin H, you remember, I hope, cousin Quartus's eldest daughter, the dark Juno, the queen of Olympus, who was now married, asked us to spend some weeks with her on the outskirts of Dublin in Dundrum. There, on her drawing-room table, I found the very book which had started the whole affair, and which I had never dared to hope I should see, Siegfried and the Twilight of the Gods, illustrated by Arthur Rackham. His pictures, which seemed to me then to be the very music made visible, plunged me a few fathoms deeper into my delight. I have seldom coveted anything as I coveted that book. And when I heard that there was a cheaper edition at fifteen shillings, though the sum was to me almost mythological, I knew I could never rest till it was mine. I got it, in the end, largely because my brother went shares with me, purely through kindness, as I now see, and then more than half suspected, for he was not enslaved by the northernness. With a generosity which I was even then half ashamed to accept, he sank in what must have seemed to him a mere picture-book seven and sixpence, for which he knew a dozen better uses. Although this affair will already seem to some readers undeserving of the space I have given it, I cannot continue my story at all without noting some of its bearings on the rest of my life. First, you will misunderstand everything, unless you realize that, at the time, Asgard and the Valkyries seem to me incomparably more important than anything else in my experience, than the matron Miss C, or the dancing mistress, or my chances of a scholarship. More shockingly, they seemed much more important than my steadily growing doubts about Christianity. This may have been, in part no doubt was, penal blindness. Yet that might not be the whole story. If the northernness seemed then a bigger thing than my religion, that may partly have been because my attitude towards it contained elements which my religion ought to have contained, and did not. It was not itself a new religion, for it contained no trace of belief, and imposed no duties. Yet, unless I am greatly mistaken, there was in it something very like adoration, some kind of quite disinterested self-abandonment to an object which securely claimed this by simply being the object it was. We are taught in the prayer books to Quote, give thanks to God for his great glory, as if we owed him more thanks for being what he necessarily is than for any particular benefit he confers upon us. And so indeed we do, and to know God is to know this. But I had been far from any such experience. I came far nearer to feeling this about the Norse gods whom I disbelieved in than I had ever done about the true God while I believed. Sometimes I can almost think that I was sent back to the false gods there to acquire some capacity for worship, against the day when the true God should recall me to himself. Not that I might not have learned this sooner, and more safely, in ways I shall now never know, without apostasy, but that divine punishments are also mercies, and particular good is worked out of particular evil, and the penal blindness made sanative. Secondly, 
this imaginative renaissance almost at once produced a new appreciation of external nature. At first, I think, this was parasitic on the literary and musical experiences. On that holiday at Dundrum, cycling among the Wicklow Mountains, I was always involuntarily looking for scenes that might belong to the Wagnerian world. Here a steep hillside covered with firs, where Mima might meet Siglinda. There a sunny glade where Siegfried might listen to the bird. Or presently a dry valley of rocks, where the lithe, scaly body of Fafner might emerge from its cave. But soon, I cannot say how soon, nature ceased to be a mere reminder of the books, became herself the medium of the real joy. I do not say she ceased to be a reminder. All joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. But nature and the books now became equal reminders, joint reminders of, well, of whatever it is. I came no nearer to what some would regard as the only genuine love of nature, the studious love which will make a man a botanist or an ornithologist. It was the mood of a scene that mattered to me, and in tasting that mood my skin and nose were as busy as my eyes. Thirdly, I passed on from Wagner to everything else I could get hold of about Norse mythology. Myths of the Norsemen, myths and legends of the Teutonic race, Mallet's Northern Antiquities. I became knowledgeable. From these books again and again I received the stab of joy. I did not yet notice that it was, very gradually, becoming rarer. I did not yet reflect on the difference between it and the merely intellectual satisfaction of getting to know the Edaic universe. If I could at this time have found anyone to teach me Old Norse, I believe I would have worked at it hard. And finally, the change I had undergone introduces a new difficulty into the writing of this present book. From that first moment in the schoolroom at Chartres, my secret imaginative life began to be so important and so distinct from my outer life that I almost have to tell two separate stories. The two lives do not seem to influence each other at all. Where there are hungry wastes, starving for joy in the one, and the other may be full of cheerful bustle and success. Or again, where the outer life is miserable, the other may be brimming over with ecstasy. By the imaginative life, I here mean only my life is concerned with joy, including in the outer life much that would ordinarily be called imagination, as, for example, much of my reading, and all of my erotic or ambitious fantasies, for these are self-regarding. Even animal land and India belong to the outer. But they were no longer animal land and India. Sometime in the late 18th century, their 18th century, not ours, they had been united into the single state of Boxen, which yields, oddly, an adjective Boxonian, not Boxenian, as you might expect. By a wise provision, they retained their separate kings, but had a common legislative assembly, the Damerfesk. The electoral system was democratic, but this mattered very much less than in England, for the Damerfesk was never doomed to one fixed meeting place. The joint sovereigns could summon it anywhere, say, at the tiny fishing village of Danfabel, the Clavelli of northern animal land, nestling at the foot of the mountains, or in the island of Piscia. And, since the court knew the sovereign's choice earlier than anyone else, all local accommodation would be booked before a private member got wind of the matter. 
nor, if he reached the session, had he the least assurance that it would not be moved elsewhere as soon as he arrived. Hence we hear of a certain member who had never actually sat in the Damerfesque at all, except on one fortunate occasion when it met in his hometown. The records sometimes call this assembly the Parliament, but that is misleading. It had only a single chamber, and the kings presided. At the period which I know best, the effective control, however, was not in their hands, but in those of an all-important functionary known as the Little Master. You must pronounce this all as one word with the accent on the first syllable, like Jerry Builder. The Little Master was a prime minister, a judge, and if not always commander-in-chief, the records waver on this point, certainly always a member of the general staff. Such, at least, were the powers he wielded when I last visited Boxham. They may have been encroachments, for the office was held at that time by a man, or, to speak more accurately, a frog, of powerful personality. Lord Big brought to his task one rather unfair advantage. He had been the tutor of the two young kings, and continued to hold over them a quasi-parental authority. Their spasmodic efforts to break his yoke were, unhappily, more directed to the evasion of his inquiry into their private pleasures than to any serious political end. As a result, Lord Big, immense in size, resonant of voice, chivalrous, he was the hero of innumerable duels, stormy, eloquent, and impulsive, almost was the state. The reader will divine a certain resemblance between the life of the two kings under Lord Big and our own life under our father. He will be right. But Big was not, in origin, simply our father first batrachized and then caricatured in some directions and glorified in others. He was in many ways a prophetic portrait of Sir Winston Churchill, as Sir Winston Churchill came to be during the last war. I have indeed seen photographs of that great statesman in which, to anyone who has known Boxen, the frog element was unmistakable. This was not our only anticipation of the real world. Lord Big's most consistent opponent, the gadfly that always got inside his armor, was a certain small brown bear, a lieutenant in the navy. And believe me or believe me not, Lieutenant James Barr was almost exactly like Mr. John Betjeman, whose acquaintance I could not then have made. Ever since I have done so, I have been playing Lord Big to his James Barr. The interesting thing about the resemblance between Lord Big and my father is that such reflections of the real world had not been the germ out of which Boxen grew. They were more numerous as it drew nearer to its end, a sign of overripeness, or even the beginning of decay. Go back a little and you will not find them. The two sovereigns who allowed themselves to be dominated by Lord Big were King Benjamin VIII of Animal Land and Rajah Hoki, I think sixth, of India. They had much in common with my brother and myself, but their fathers, the elder Benjamin and the elder Hawkey, had not. The fifth Hawkey is a shadowy figure, but the seventh Benjamin, a rabbit, as you will have guessed, is a rounded character. I can see him still, the heaviest jowled and squarest builded of all rabbits, very fat in his later years, most shabbily and unroyally clad in his loose brown coat and baggy checked trousers, yet not without a certain dignity which could on occasion, take disconcerting forms. His earlier life had been dominated by the belief that he could be both a king and an amateur detective. He never succeeded in the latter role, partly because the chief enemy whom he was pursuing, Mr. Battlesmere, was not really a criminal at all, 
but a lunatic, a complication which would have thrown out the plans of Sherlock Holmes himself. But he very often got himself kidnapped, sometimes for longish periods, and caused great anxiety to his court. We do not learn that his colleague, Hawkey V, shared this. Once, on his return from such a misadventure, he had great difficulty in establishing his identity. Battlesmere had dyed him, and the familiar brown figure reappeared as a piebald rabbit. Finally, what will boys not think of? He was a very early experimenter with what has since been called artificial insemination. The judgment of history cannot pronounce him either a good rabbit or a good king, but he was not a non-entity. He ate prodigiously. And now that I have opened the gate, all the Boxonians, like the ghosts in Homer, come clamoring for mention. But they must be denied it. Readers who have built a world would rather tell of their own than hear of mine. Those who have not would perhaps be bewildered and repelled. Nor had Boxon any connection with joy. I have mentioned it at all because to omit it would have been to misrepresent this period of my life. One caution must here be repeated. I have been describing a life in which, plainly, imagination of one sort or another played the dominant part. Remember that it never involved the least grain of belief. I never mistook imagination for reality. About the northernness, no such question could arise. It was essentially a desire and implied the absence of its object. And boxing we could never believe in, for we had made it. No novelist, in that sense, believes in his own characters. At the end of the summer term, 1913, I won a classical entrance scholarship to Wyvern College. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>